Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's national parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode 23. In this episode, Brian speaks with Dayton Duncan. This is the second part of our commemoration of the 10-year anniversary of Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan's documentary, The National Parks, America's Best Idea. If you haven't yet listened to our interview with Ken Burns, you can look up our archive, episode 13, that was published in April 2019. Send us your questions or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com or on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Now let's get to the conversation. Okay, we are here with Dayton Duncan as the second part of our interviews with the creators of the National Parks America's Best Idea, the 10-year anniversary of the premiere of that documentary. So Dayton, thank you very much. Just really quickly, as many people know who follow the parks, he's very much an advocate for the national parks, the park system, and public lands. Dayton's the author of multiple books and articles on topics, including the parks, more recently, Lewis and Clark Trail, Politics, The Frontier, and also some books for children about the West. So Dayton, thank you very much for taking some time out from your busy schedule, including the recent premiere of the country music documentary, which you've worked on, to go in the Wayback Machine and talk about the <laughs> National Parks documentary. We really appreciate it. Well, it's something very close to my heart, so I'm always glad to talk about national parks. So again, thanks. And you know, one thing in re-watching the series again that came out in 2009, and when you put your pen down and Ken put his camera down, it was you know the beginning of the prior presidential administration, and I've always thought, probably pulling on the thread of Ken having years later put out the 10th inning of baseball, if you had another chapter to put out of the National Park Series, what would it be on? And, or, or in other words, what did you feel that perhaps didn't make the final cut that, that was left out that you wish were back in? Well, I think there's two things. Uh, first of all, when we do a big series like National Parks, like baseball, like most recently country music, because we tell historical stories. We're not journalists. We tell history. We need about an arm's length of, say, a generation, 20, 25 years of distance from the topic in order to, you know, that's the difference between journalism and history is that advantage, that perspective of time of what was significant, what might have seemed important, but turned out not to be so much, and all those kind of things. So first of all, you know, we end the National Parks film basically with the Alaska Act of 1980, uh, ANOCA, the great expansion of the Park Service and the number of parks with all those parks that were added up there in Alaska, one in one big, it was the Louisiana purchase of the National Park System. It doubled the amount of land that were within the boundaries of national parks. We have a little code at the end about the restoration of wolves into Yellowstone, which is a nice sort of restoring it a little bit closer to what it once was. So we had to have that distance. And, you know, time moves forward. And so now you could look back and say, well, now we can deal with more of the 80s and the 90s now. You know, a thing that we deliberately chose not to. So there's that. In terms of within the 
embrace of the number of years that we used for the National Parks America's Best Idea, which was up into the early 80s. You know, there are a lot of stories that I wrote that, you know, fell on the editing floor, and that happens in every film that we do together. That's part of our process of winnowing things down in order to get them into our episode. And so the film is 12 hours long, uh, which is, you know, generous, but we're covering you know, more than 100 years of history. And so a lot of things can't be told. You know, it's a shameless plug, I guess, but a number of the stories that were in the original draft of the script are there in the companion book. And a lot of details that had to fall onto the editing floor are also in that. So it, that spares me the agony of having written some of those things and have them disappear forever. So I, I get to that. You know, when we have to make a choice, a hard choice of winnowing something down, a whole story or a character or details, he'll pat me on the back before I start sobbing and say, don't worry, Dave, you put that in the companion book. So there's that, right? Which is different than, you know, what I think the story of the future looking back on, say, the last 10 years would be. I have opinions on that, but that's more for, you know, a historian in the you know, in the next 20 years to look back on them. But I, I'm happy to talk about what my thoughts are about that, but it'd be more as somebody who loves the parks and is a, an ex-reporter than as somebody doing a historical perspective. Well, this is the right audience for a deep cut. Do you recall one of the, the stories or elaborations that are in the companion book that didn't oh. make the film? Yeah, now, so, you know, they were talking about something that, came out 10 years ago, and therefore I wrote it, you know, 12 or 13 years ago. There's a story in the companion book about a wonderful woman by the name of, I may not pronounce it right, Adina de Savala in San Antonio. And she was born in the 19th century, and she was the defender of the Alamo when the daughters of the Texas Revolution had plans to, in essence, not uh, keep it up. She more or less barricaded herself in there with some others and, you know, said, we have to save the Alamo, you know, not just remember the Alamo, but save it. And she led the charge that prevented it from being torn down and then was joined in an effort that eventually used the National Historic Sites Act, I think it is, that designated a different mission, Mission San Jose in San Antonio, as part of the National Historic Site, and then got broadened into some other missions. So it's a wonderful story. You know, everyone likes to remember the Alamo, and it's this great character, and right in line with, I think, one of the things that emerge in our film and in the companion book that accompanied it, which is part of, I think, the an essential part of the message that we're trying to get across, not as a preaching message, but just as a message of this is the story of National Parks. And that is, it's a story of individual citizens falling in love with a place so completely and wanting it to preserve it so that other people, years later in generations that they would never know, could also fall in love with that place and 
going about either individually or in small groups, aggregations of groups, to get Congress to do the right thing and to protect it, you know. And that's, to me, the enduring story of national parks. It is that personal connection, that spark, that transcendent moment that different people might have had at a particular place, and then the struggle that they undertook to get it saved. It's the opposite of what I think most stereotypes are of a national park. We assume that it's a top-down story. Well, it's obviously this is a national park, a great place, a great historic site, whatever. Obviously, it should be saved. Well, that wasn't the case. It took citizens, you know, to activate themselves and others to get those places preserved. And I thought that really was the theme that was imbued on Danielle and me when we watched the series, was that that theme of citizen action throughout the history of the national parks. And even this, this deep cut, truly remember the Alamo. I want to tie these threads together because I also asked you about how the parks have evolved now with some remove over the last few years. Do you still think, are you seeing that same level of citizen action since you put your pen down 10 years ago, over these last 10 years, in promoting and preserving the national parks? Well, I think what I've witnessed in the last 10 years with national parks reminds me of many of the stories that we found you know, when we were doing our film and my book and the research for it, which is it goes in spurts and stops. Progress can be made. Progress can be lost. So that in the early times since the film came out, under President Obama, more parks were created. He ended up using the great thing called the Antiquities Act, which was dates back to 1906, that gives a president the unique authority, by a stroke of a pen, to set aside federal land and protect it as a national monument without needing to go to Congress. And in the face of recalcitrant Congresses over the history of that Antiquities Act that began with Theodore Roosevelt, there have been certain presidents who used it to push the ball forward to incorporate more public lands and protect them for future generations. And so I believe it's true that uh, President Obama ended up protecting more land and creating more monuments some of them natural and some of them historical, than any president before him. This also occurred during the centennial of the National Park Service in 2016, and the Park Service used that centennial as a prompt to try to look at where they stood and what things needed to be done, what should they be doing better. And I think that going into 2016, there was considerable momentum of that combination of a president who became passionate about parks. He felt that his connection to the mainland of the United States, having grown up in Hawaii, was partly forged by when his grandparents took him to the Grand Canyon. So for him, it was personal, but parks were important. There was a great momentum, and I'm very sorry to say that my opinion is that we're in a, another cycle that also sometimes has its historic precedence, which is 
that there's no sense of, in the White House, that national parks have that great of importance. Some of the national monuments that President Obama made and that created with the Antiquities Act, and actually one that President Clinton made to the Antiquities Act, are the attempts are being made to reduce the boundaries. That's, you know, being challenged in court to open some of those places to extractive uses, which is contrary to what ought to be happen. And I may be wrong, but we still, this is 2019 in November, and there is still not a confirmed director of the National Park Service. None has really been brought before the Senate. That's So that is, if not crippling, that is not helpful to good park policies if you don't have somebody who has been approved by the U.S. Senate, obviously is in there to stay versus a series revolving door of, of acting directors. So we've seen the you know, in this last 10 years, we've had, you know, the best of times and uh, not so best of times, the worst of times. But what we learned from your series that in some of those worst of times, there were citizens who were filling the void and agitating and advocating. Have you seen today's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? Is there someone like that or others like that? Are you encouraged or are you discouraged right now? You know, to be honest with you, Brian, I can't name a person right now. And by saying that, I don't want to imply that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is, you know, like on a Mount Rushmore of park defenders. There are lots of people who are national park defenders, public land defenders, all of them organizing, working, trying their best to both protect what's already supposedly protected and to expand the number of places that need to be protected. So there's different organizations. There's a number of people. I I just, again, this is why I'm better at history than I am now. I don't have a name to throw out there, but, you know, what this moment in time reminds us is worth remembering because it is so true. You can save a place by making it a national park or making it a national monument. And that's an important thing to do. But that is not always permanent. The protections can be removed or they can be reduced and the thing you thought you had saved can be lost. Once a special place, a natural site, a historic sacred site is ruined, it's ruined. Once it's saved, it still requires the vigilance you know, an activism of defenders to hold back those forces that still want to, you know, go back and encroach upon it. And that's the story of the, I think we bring out in the story of of the national parks. You know, we have to create defenders of these places. That's something that has to be taught and instilled because that fight will never end, as John Muir would say the fight for conservation will never have an end because there will always be part of who we are as Americans are the people who could look at a river canyon and say, what a wonderful place for a dam, or could look at at a mountainside and think, I wonder how much 
lumber we could get off of those trees. I wonder if we dug down deep enough and opened the holes big enough, what kind of minerals we could get or could look at a beautiful place and say, boy, what a wonderful golf course and retirement community this would make. You know, that's who we are. That's part of who we are as Americans. And that's, you know, I'm not disparaging that entirely. I'm just saying we, we need to admit that's who we are. The other half of who we are, however, our story, I think, demonstrated, is that we're also a people that can say, no, not here. Stop. You know, the National Park idea, which I believe is the Declaration of Independence, applied to the landscape. That is to say, it is saying that our most special places are not the exclusive province of the wealthy or the well-connected or nobility as they had always been in the past. They belong to all of us. They need to be preserved for all of us forever. Just like the definition of what is freedom, you know, is something that is debated, challenged, and has to be eternally protected with great vigilance. That's the same is true of the National Park idea. And also the idea of that public lands belong to everybody and everybody is welcome there. It's eternal, but it also means that there's an eternal battle that may have to be waged to keep those protections in place. Well, I'd like to drill into that if I can. Referring back to an op-ed you wrote in the Times in 2016 entitled, Are We Loving Our National Parks to Death? So in your opinion is, and you know, 2016 for some of us feels like 70 years ago, so maybe there's an update here, but is the threat to the parks operational, that the, these parks are underfunded, that there's not enough physical infrastructure, there's not enough human capital in the parks to deal with not only overcrowding, but threats including climate change, for example? Or is the threat, hey, look, you know, those that can be public lands, Bears Ears, for example, are diminishing. And these are the things that we need, you know, put out new stakes and preserve those lands. Or is it all of the above? I mean, keying off that article you wrote, where do you think the threat is? And if there's citizen action today, should it be on, let's make Yellowstone as great as it can be? Or is it, look, we need to keep preserving the greater Yellowstone ecosystem with national forests and other public lands surrounding Yellowstone National Park? Yeah, I don't think it's a one or the other, Brian. I think You know, within the park idea is that these very special places need to be preserved and protected forever for the enjoyment of everyone. Now, within that is attention. And they knew it when they were creating the National Park Service in 1916 that that existed. You know, there's two parts. Obviously, a monarchy or a really rich people could set aside a place and save it forever and let themselves on occasion or their wealthy friends enjoy it. So the brilliance of the National Park idea, which is like the brilliance of our Declaration of Independence, you know, carries with it these responsibilities as well as opportunities. So the other half is for everyone. And no one has more rights to it than anybody else. That is not, you know, within saying that is saying we've got to protect them as well. Therefore, there are management problems that arise as more people 
decide to say, I want to go check this property that I own. I want to take my family to see Yellowstone. I want to go look down into the Grand Canyon through the library of time, the layers of time that John Muir described. You know, I want to see those big trees. I want to go see those glaciers. And that's part of the genius and beauty and sacredness of the national park idea. But it does bring with it management problems. So there are things that have to be dealt with. And that is continual challenge for the park service at a time when more people are doing it. And our film, you know, helps spark more people going. At the same time, the other flip side of that is that if nobody comes, then there are no park defenders. There is no new generation of people who say, no, you can't despoil this place. And so more people need to be welcome. Parts of our population who previously have felt unwelcome in national parks need to be assured and shown that this belongs as much to them as it does to anybody else. And there is great joy and worth of coming to visit these places there. So they, you need to be both encouraging people and then working to make sure that the people that come aren't ruining it as they come. And that's been part of the bargain from the time people were coming into Yellowstone and pouring baking soda and laundry soap down the geysers to make them spout. Right. You know, they finally had to be, <laughs> rules had to be put into place to say, no, actually, you can't do that, right? Right. You're welcome here, but laundry soap down into Old Faithful to see if you can get it to come off, go off a little bit earlier. No, you can't do that. So the need for different regulations. When cars brought in, that park service was unprepared for it. And people just parked their cars where they, wherever they wanted. So, you know, rules had to be enforced on that. You know, he's no longer under this administration, but the previous superintendent of Yellowstone, who had also been an acting director of the park service, you know, had said, we have to figure out if we have a visitor capacity issue at Yellowstone or a vehicle capacity issue at Yellowstone. In other words, can we get more people in if all of them are coming in car? All these things are management problems, right? The existential thing is if you close it off too much, then you lose that other half of it, which is it does belong, you know, to everyone. So there's that. You know, the parks are so important to us on so many levels to our breathing space, spiritual space. A writer, Terry Tempest Williams, called it the open space of democracy. A place where you can go and feel a connection to a wider natural world and experience something that's larger than yourself, which is the definition of transcendence, a place where families can go and create imperishable memories because generation later, that child that you brought to that place, and this has happened to me as a child and happened to me as a parent, you can go to a place and then come back with the next generation. And if you're lucky, and it can only be happen at these days in the national parks, it still is the same as it was. It still looks the same as it was because it's been protected. And you pass that 
transcendent moment, that feeling of exaltation, whatever you want to call it, onto the next generation. And you can feel in your heart that that child of yours, you know, will be standing there sometime with their child having that. In those kind of moments, time collapses and explodes simultaneously. And those are magical things available in the parks. I want to talk about those magical moments and especially towards the end of the series, especially when Dayton, you talked about your family and on the screen were pictures of your families on vacation. Uh-huh. I have to admit, it still does when we rewatch it. It gets a little dusty in our, <laughs> where we're watching, watching TV uh, when that comes up, you know, as parents ourselves of two little girls that we experience these parks with. What is it about the parks and family relationships? I mean, you know, there's plenty of places to go on vacation and you can have a nice time at Six Flags or not to pick on amusement parks. You can go to a county park and go camping and that could be very nice. But what is it that sets apart that experience in a national park with your family? That magic, you know, is it just magic or can you define that? Why is it so? Because we feel the same thing and we feel that connection as well. Why is that? Well, first of all, if it's a national park, there's probably a good reason for it. I mean, there are a lot of wonderful county parks and wonderful family experiences can be had there. It's not quite the same as looking across Jenny Lake at the Tetons. I mean, that's the reason one of the reasons it got made into a national park and protected was, you know, because of that, just, you know, these are the most, in many instances, the most spectacular, gobsmacking wonders of nature that we have in our landscape. And that was the original, you know, most of the early parks were from that. You know, Yellowstone is the greatest collection of thermal features in the world. It also has four or five stupendously beautiful waterfalls. It also has bison herds, wild wolves, grizzly and black bears, and other things. And no other place has that. The Grand Canyon is the grandest canyon in the world. You know, you go on and on. The sequoias are the largest living things on Earth. And the redwoods are the tallest living things on Earth. So, I mean, they are, as we say in our film, the treasure house of superlatives. So there's that. But I think the other thing for me is, well, first of all, if you're taking your family, you know, I think particularly, too, if you're taking your children, but if it's just you and somebody you love, you cross a boundary into a timelessness when you cross a boundary into a national park, which is the success of the idea, which is to say, this place is eternal. This place is transcendent. And now you've crossed that boundary and you feel it. If you're there with your children, first of all, you're all experiencing this beauty or this majesty or this history that might connect you to who you are as a people together. And that's a special moment for both kids and parents. It's not exclusive to national parks. You you know, have other travels that you do, but you're in a different space and time, actually. And so there's that. And then there's this added thing that, if you know, have a lucky life as I did, is that the first time I ever, as a kid growing up in a little town in Iowa, the only 
vacation my family ever could take was to get in the car and go west from Iowa into some of the national parks. We did that for two reasons. One is they're national parks and, you know, they belong to all of us and they're beautiful. And secondly, we could afford it. You know, that was an unforgettable experience for a kid from Iowa to see the Badlands and the Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons and Dinosaur National Monument. You know, I think back on my life now and I think that trip, you know, I didn't come back from it saying, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, you know, ultimately travel around the nation writing books and then doing films about our history and our landscape. I didn't think that, but my mom, who had sort of tricked me into thinking that I was the one that was planning the trip with maps and stuff like that, you know, I was learning something. And I look back at what I've done as an adult in my life, and a lot of it does flow from that. You know, I grew up in a little town in Iowa, and the house I grew up in is now part of a parking lot. If I drive by there when I go back to Iowa, I can still feel the memories of growing up there. But if I, when I took our children, Diane and I, to Jenny Lake in Grand Teton National Park, standing there looking at the Tetons, I could, you know, it, it hearkened the memories I had of being there with my dad and my mom and my big sister. And that for the rest of her life, my mom would talk about that, and her eyes would get a little misty, saying that that was the most beautiful thing that she'd ever seen in her life. Right. And standing there a generation later with my children, one of whom, our daughter, is named for my mom, looking out at that same scene that was exactly the way it was in my memory, holding her hand, I could feel I was both a little boy holding my mother's hand, and I was a father holding my daughter's hand. And as I said before, time collapses and time expands simultaneously. And I could feel at least sense that someday, she would be standing there with a child looking at it. And if we do our responsibility and our duty, it will still look the way it did, you know, for those generations of our family that that preceded. I can take her back to my hometown in Iowa and talk to her about my things, but it doesn't quite have that power. And so these places are places where you can feel that a memory is safe. You know what I mean? You can put this memory and it's so easily and instantly accessible to you when you return. And it doesn't have to be a family memory. It could just be your own personal memory because it's going to be the same. And that's in a world and in your own life in which change is the one constant. Having places like that are important. I mean, that's to me is part of the majesty of them. I mean, there are other things. You mentioned climate change. I'm happy to talk about that, too. I mean, they operate on a lot of levels. But one of the things we learned in doing our film 
is that thing that, that prompted the effort to save a place came from the heart more than just the head. And the passion that was required to do the long slog, you know, oftentimes the long slog that was required to finally get Congress, you know, to protect the place or get a president to protect the place, that came from the heart too. And we believed as we were making the film, we somehow have to be able to touch on that part of what parks are. And we found, I think, I like to think at least, that we found examples, not just me relating mine in the final episode, but a travelers couple from Nebraska and his photographs and her diaries that helped get across that special connection that it had with people. Or my goodness, John Muir's writings about his experiences in the Sierra Nevada and, and Yosemite Valley. I mean, that's transcendence on steroids. Yeah, I could not have said it better myself. If we do our jobs, these places will echo through the generations. So not just you feeling your mother and then as a child and as a parent, but you know, in some ways as a grandparent, as a great grandparent and, and on and on and on. If if that's what's magical as well is that it's probably the element of being human, right? That uh, if you're standing on the shores of Jenny Lake, if you're a human being, you will be awed. And it is something that you feel if you can, you can return to and capture that magic spirit. For us, that's what makes, you know, it kind of encapsulates also what it means to be a family and, and uh, passing on either values, calls to action on defending these places or just being in the element of nature and appreciating it and enjoying it. And what you, you can't do in other places as well. So I think that for us, that's the magic as well. And I, I think you, I think you nailed it, Dayton. So that's, that's also how we feel. We, we would agree. The companion book that I wrote has a quote from John Muir that for some reason we decided to end with a different quote than in the book. But Muir was talking about this point when he was writing a letter to somebody who had helped, as he had helped, create Mount Rainier National Park. And he said, happy will be those who, having the power and the love and the benevolent forecast, I love that phrase, the power and the love and the benevolent forecast to create a park will do it. They will not be forgotten. The trees and their lovers will sing their praises, and generations yet unborn will rise up and call them blessed. This is true freedom, a good practical sort of immortality. I love that. that that's, you know, one, one of the great things about doing the National Parks film was, was sort of what, also what I learned when we did a film biography of Mark Twain. You know, as the writer, part of my job was to shut up and let somebody else speak. <laughs> <laughs> so letting John Muir take over, you know, it was uh, one of the great joys of that film for me, of getting to know him better than I did and appreciate yeah. how powerful a force he was in a time when it was all through his writing, people reading what he wrote and being moved by it. As you were reading that, I was thinking boy, what I would give to be able to write like that. I mean, so it's nice to have a ringer like that describe yeah, the parts. No. <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad. You know, I know you're, you're also uh, very busy and pressed for time. So just a few more questions for you. You know, one thing we usually ask to close out 
our interviews on a particular park is someone who's had a transcendent experience or, or what was been in their special experience. You've, you've already described that a bit, I think. I don't know if you can top that, You're speaking about your family. Yeah. However, we did find a little article where you had mentioned some places that you would like to revisit in the parks. And after all, this podcast is a bit of a travelogue. Yeah. So I would love to hear from Dayton Duncan himself. If, uh, you know, and maybe this has changed since this little article came out, but where's a place right now that you're hankering to revisit or maybe even visit that you haven't been to yet, another part of a park? What's on your mind right now? You know, what's on your travel itinerary? Well, I think what I would put down for me right now is return to my favorite national park, which is Glacier National Park. And it's my favorite park. It's a gorgeous park spectacularly gorgeous and you there you can see bears and you can see Rocky Mountain goats and bighorn sheep and moose, you know, beautiful lakes, waterfalls and just stupendous mountain scenery. And so I'm not saying that it's the best park and most beautiful park, but the reason it is my favorite park is because it's the park that I went to with Diane, now my wife, during our courtship times. It was the first park that we ever went to together. It became the first park that we took our two children, the practical transcendent results of that courtship (laughs) when they were a little bit older. It's the first park that we took them to, a place where I'd taken a picture of Diane, you know, before we got married and came back and at the same place, took a picture of our daughter sitting in the same place. It was a place where my son Will and I had a couple of great buddy hikes, as we would call them. And so the reason it's my favorite park is because of those memories that it brings forth in a beautiful place. So I've been back lots of times, sometimes by uh, regretfully only by myself, but other times with Diane and sometimes as a family. I put it on my list because the parks also serve an important function for us because they are so permanent and because in some instances we've been studying them so long, they are the canary in the coal mine that remind us of the damage that we've done to the planet itself with global warming and climate change. So, you know, the Glacier National Park once had, I think, about 150 glaciers that you could see. I think there's about 25 now. And the projections are they'll probably be gone in 20 years. You know, if you went to Joshua Tree National Park because of warming nighttime temperatures there, one study estimates that the number of Joshua trees will be reduced by 90% by the end of the century. If you go to Everglades, another great national park on the tip of Florida, there's a sign that designates Rock Reef Pass, and it's sort of a joke. It's saying this is the highest point in Everglades National Park, and it says elevation three feet. Yeah. So from those three, you know, in different corners of the continental United States, you've got these unbelievable trees, the Joshua trees, that because of climate change are threatened with disappearing. You've got this wonderful park in the tip of Florida, which was the first national park set aside for 
because of the species that were there more than the scenery per se. But, you know, it's not hard to imagine what's going to become of that park if sea levels keep rising enough. That is to say, most of it will disappear underwater. And then if you go to my favorite national park, Glacier National Park, you know, in 20 years, there may not be any glaciers there. And it'll be, you know, Glacier National Park minus glaciers. What these park service and the park idea, that's beyond the power of the National Park Service itself. But they're doing their best as good citizens to reduce their carbon imprint and things like that. But they also try to make sure that people can understand in these spectacular places that this thing is real. You know, if you've got a friend who's a climate change denier, I would urge you to take them to the Many Glacier Hotel, M-A-N-Y, like lots of glaciers, Many Glacier Hotel, a grand old hotel on the east side of Glacier National Park, one of the most spectacular views you could ever have. Look from the balcony there, looking out over two lakes and up into the ramparts of the mountains where there are a number of glaciers, including one called the Grinnell Glacier. Because it was a national park, and because in the buildup to it became a national park, it was photographed so much in the late 19th century, in the late 1800s and, and on. And the Grinnell Glacier was one of the most accessible, named for a great park champion, George Bird Grinnell, that you could hike up to easily. If you walk down a hall of that hotel, it has the chronology of photos of it. And you can see it disappearing over time. And so you can still hike up there. And if you need any urging to say, this is something that shouldn't be happening, and what can I do to stop it? Glacier is both a beautiful place to be, but a sort of prod to the butt, as well as an arrow to your heart, to remind you of how special these places are and how necessary it is for citizens to get active, to both try to tell their representatives, these parks belong to all of us. You need to do your job, congressman or congresswoman, to give it the money that they need to do their job. And we need to have more parks, and we need something that's even larger than that, which is the fate of our planet itself. Well, you've poked the tiger in the eye more than you could know. Our next big family vacation for next summer is going to Glacier. And, ah, and you know, right. yeah, so we're excited when we've never been. And uh, we're all excited for the reasons why anyone would be excited. We're excited for the yep. hikes, the vistas, the architecture, whitewater rafting. It's going to be fun. My parents will be there. So three generations will be hanging out. But also we wanted to go and we wanted to go sooner rather than later for the reasons that you mentioned that these glaciers are going and we wanted to get there and at least have an imprint on our memory of something that may not be forever. And I think right. it's a great way to, to close our discussion because one thing that we've admired about you, Dayton, Danielle and I, is that not only have you been able to kind of weave in the grandeur of the parks and why one should visit and have fun and spend time with their family, but you've weaved in calls to action as you just did that 
you know, these are not permanent and these are, are not a given and uh, they are changing. And there's things that we all can do, those of us who love the parks, things that we all can do to support them and make sure that they say either the way they are or expand them or make sure they remain accessible for all for generations to come. So those glaciers don't all disappear and go away or Everglades doesn't flood out, right? So these are the things that uh, I think you've been able to do over over your career and have had a huge impact. So thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate everything. And thank you again for taking time out on a busy year and a busy time for you (laughs) to revisit the, the National Parks documentary. Again, Dayton Duncan, the writer and I guess filmmaker as well. And, yep. and please check out, check out uh, his book, Seed of the Future, Yosemite and the Evolution of the National Park. And also I think that we learned is uh, check out that, which we have as well, check out the companion piece to the National Parks America's Best Idea, the book for those deeper cuts that didn't make the film and to kind of elaborate on some of those stories and themes that the film hit upon. And I think that's going to be well worth anyone's time. And, uh, and finally, that you know, Dayton and Ken are, which I think is really cool, is uh, that you are, I hope you still are, honorary park rangers, yeah. which again, it's not something that is handed out to many people. No. So you're you're part of an elite few and that's that's pretty cool. That was one of the great honors of my lifetime. And uh, it was a total surprise. We were showing advanced clips to the director of the National Park Service and the staff in Washington at the headquarters there. And at the end of that, then he gave us a certificate Better than that, he also presented both Ken and me with ranger hats. And so we have that in our homes. And with my family, whenever I get cranky and surly, then uh, our kids would say, go get the ranger hat for dad. Because, you know, if you're a park ranger, you're not allowed to be surly. you got to be welcoming and nice. So that was our standing joke but you know we've won lots of different awards and stuff for our films but being in a pretty exclusive group of being an honorary park ranger is something very dear to both of our hearts well when we saw that we both thought please <laughs> tell me they got a hat they got the smoky the bear hat because i'm glad that's really cool so thank you very much for all of your time and all of your work and we very much appreciate it so uh thanks again dayton thank you you bet Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybody's nps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybodysnationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag Everybody's National Parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Thank you to all of our listeners and financial supporters via Patreon for sharing in this national park adventure. Bye for now.